This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Mint chip. Yeah. Roger Stone and nothing wrong. They want to get me like I'm Roger Stone. Roger, Roger. They want to get me like I'm Roger Stone. They want to frame me like I'm Roger Stone. Yeah, they want me gone. They want to frame me like I'm Roger Stone. Welcome. This is Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show here on WABC, making AM radio great again. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. My daughter, Audrea, took me to church at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, even though I'm baptized as a Catholic, and then out for a little chicken parmesan afterwards. It's already started out as a great day. I want to remind you that you can listen to The Roger Stone Show, in fact, the entire WABC lineup, by going to 770 AM on your AM dial. If you live in the greater New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area where I grew up, or you can go to WABCradio.com. Uh, or here's my real advice. Download the WABC radio app. That way, you won't miss an incredible lineup. First, there's the great Sid Rosenberg in the morning, a must-listen-to show. If you're a night owl, you're not going to want to miss Frank Marano's The Other Side of Midnight. Of course, the undisputed queen of gossip, Cindy Adams. Uh, My good friend Larry Kudlow, who had me on his show yesterday. The apostle of supply-side economics and the quarterback of President Donald Trump's refurbishment uh, and reignition of the most robust economy in American history. A longtime friend of mine, Rita Cosby, there's a lady in the know. Greg Kelly, uh, who does a great show as well at Newsmax. And then there's America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani, only the greatest mayor in New York City history. Uh, and uh, his son, Andrew Giuliani, who, believe me, folks, is Going to be governor of New York State someday. Uh, my old friend, Judge Janine Pirro. But then, of course, the most influential show in the New York area, The Cats Roundtable, which you can hear every weekday at 5 o'clock Eastern uh, and Sunday mornings at 8. So you're going to want to get the WABC radio app, load it into your cell phone so you don't miss any of this incredible AM programming. I want to give a special shout out to John Katzmatidis, not only because he's letting me appear here or be heard here, but because he's leading the fight to keep AM radio in American automobiles. You may not have seen this recently, but Ford uh, and Tesla both announced that they would not be including AM receivers uh, in their next generation of vehicles. This is very dangerous, folks, because the emergency broadcast system is based in AM radio, as is a lot of colorful alternative commentary, like the folks that we bring you here at WABC. In my very first show, uh, I had the high honor and privilege of having as my guest the 45th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Now, between the time that he was uh, charged in the Fugazi Jack Smith uh, witch hunt and the time that he was arraigned in a Miami courthouse, he only chose to do two radio interviews. One was here at WABC. The other one was with Americano Media uh, and Radio Libre, 
uh, Spanish language station in Miami. Here's a great clip from my interview with the president. I know the answer to this question because I've known you. We've been friends actually for 44 years. Uh, but I have to ask you anyway to clear the air. Uh, you may or may not be facing additional charges that I believe will be politically motivated. This demonstrates the Democrats are petrified about facing you in another election. So is there any circumstances under which you could see yourself dropping out of the 2024 presidential election? No, none whatsoever. Uh, and you're right. It could be that somebody was saying, I don't know how they could do this because I made a perfect phone call. I say even more perfect than the call to Ukraine where we won totally. In fact, we got 100 percent of the Republicans in Congress uh, voting in my favor. Think of that. That never happens. That never happens. And sadly, the Republicans, they got to get a little bit more unified. But we got 100 percent. I think it was 196 or 197 votes with no dissents in Congress, which is really, you know, something special. No, I see no uh, I see no case in which I would do that. I would I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I had opportunities in 2016 to do it and I didn't do it. And uh, some pretty big opportunities. Yes. You know, you know, there were people that saying, well, you just not it's not going to happen. And uh, we did it. We ran a great race. But then think of it. In 2020, we got millions more votes. Right. <laughs> I was interviewed by a reporter from a certain newspaper that is probably not your favorite. And they said, what happened exactly with 2020? I said, well, I got tens of millions more votes. I got millions and millions of more votes than I did in in 2016. And they said, you know, we never thought of that. <laughs> it's uh and, you know, no other president's gotten anywhere near that. First of all, I got the most votes of any sitting president in history. Second of all, I got 12, 13 million more votes than we got in the previous election. I think the most was a few, very few presidents get more votes the second time. I got a record setting number of votes and nobody's ever seen it like that. And then they say we didn't win the election. No, it's a very if we don't have safe, free, clear elections, and if we don't have borders, you can no longer be a country. You're not a country. Uh, that was uh, President Donald Trump on this show, The Roger Stone Show, one week ago. If you want to hear the entire interview, which uh, was very wide-ranging, I asked him about uh, his knowledge as president of UFOs and whether the federal government had any knowledge of extraterrestrial beings. I asked him about the Kennedy assassination uh, and whether he would declassify all of the documents pertaining to that sad day in Dallas, November 22nd, 1963. Of course, I asked him about the Jack Smith investigation. I asked him how Melania is doing. It's a great, great interview. What, what impressed me, and Larry Kudlow asked me about this on his great show on Saturday, was how calm, cool, collected, uh, determined the president is. This is the Donald Trump that I know, the Donald Trump I've known for 44 years. Uh, you know, I worked for Richard Nixon. I make no bones about it. He was a very great president, uh, got us a strategic arms limitation agreement with the Soviets, opened the door to China when China was a dirt poor 
broke backwards agrarian society, you know, before the Bushes gave them most favored nation trading status and the Clintons illegally sold them our top military missile targeting secrets in return for illegal campaign contributions. Uh, I worked for Senator Bob Dole, one of the greatest men of the 20th century. I was assistant to him in the U.S. Senate as well as working on his presidential campaign. Neither one of them, not even close to the toughness and resilience of Donald J. Trump. Joining me now uh, is our guest for the day. That is David Schoen. David Schoen is a criminal defense attorney who represented Donald Trump in the second impeachment. That was the Ukrainian witch hunt. Uh, David Schoen is a graduate of Columbia University Law School, where he got his Master's of Laws. Uh, he is also a graduate cum laude, where he got his Juris Doctor from Boston College Law School. Uh, David Schoen is a unique attorney because he is that rare attorney who not only understands the law, but understands the overplay, overlay uh, of politics and what's going on in public and how those things impact what is happening in the courtroom. David Schoen has represented the ACLU in Alabama for most of their major impactful cases the last 25 years. He has represented the Democratic National Committee in the 1990s and again in 2021 in Voting Rights Act. Uh, he has uh, been awarded by the American Bar Association their National Pro Bono Publico Award. Uh, and in getting that, uh, the Bar Association noted that his cases have done more to change public institutions in the South than the works of any lawyer in the area of prison reform, jails, foster care, public education, and indigent defense. Uh, he's not a Republican, uh, but he is a constitutionalist. Uh, he is, without any question whatsoever, the smartest lawyer I know. Full disclosure, had my case in which uh, the government ultimately had to admit uh, in the final unredacted section of Robert Mueller's report that they'd found no evidence whatsoever against me regarding Russian collusion, WikiLeaks collaboration, or any other crime. So in other words, a case in which I was framed for process crimes in order to pressure me to testify falsely against President Donald Trump to create Russian collusion where none existed. Well, had I not received a commutation of my sentence uh, and ultimately a full presidential pardon, David Schoen would have represented me on appeal and would have done so most ably. David Schoen, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Thank you very much. And I have to say, you know, that interview last week with President Trump was probably the best interview I've ever heard. Um, of him and uh, really classic vintage Trump and you covered such a broad range of issues but uh, thanks to your questions and uh, he listened to everything and answered everything very carefully. Well uh, David I thank you very much for taking time out on this Father's Day to join us uh, and uh, let's kind of start from the beginning. President Donald Trump finds himself besieged uh, in an ocean of lawfare. First uh, there is, are the charges filed against him by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg uh, in New York City, uh, a case which, as I've read it over and over again, still makes very little sense to me. What is your assessment of District Attorney Bragg's uh, indictment of President Trump? Uh, and uh, second, kind of a follow-up question, I know you have been somewhat critical of the way the president's lawyers have handled that thus far. What do you think they should do? 
Well, uh, very interesting. Um, you know, one thing we are seeing with these recent cases, the New York and the Florida case, is that the media, while they haven't learned their lesson completely from the Mueller committee uh, business, seems to be on to something. Um, I'll get to that in a second because I, I have in front of me a couple of Wall Street Journal pieces about the Florida indictment. But about the New York indictment, I, I think it's outrageous. I think that... Uh, you know, there's a great deal of material in Mr. Pomerantz's book, a man who was brought in as a special counsel to the district attorney's office in Manhattan, who then resigned, um, about all of the pushback in the office. The office itself, Bragg himself, recognized the case shouldn't be brought. Um, now, you know, it's easy to consider any case in the distance and not be one of the lawyers involved. But what I think the obvious moves in that case are the following. Uh, there has been a recusal motion filed, a, a motion to disqualify the judge. I think that absolutely is meritorious. The judge sought a, um, an informal opinion from an ethics board recently, but he didn't give them the full uh, layout of what the motion covered. That ethics board said they didn't think that the judge's contributions to Democratic Party candidates and causes uh, should be basis for his recusal and so on, but they didn't talk about his counseling of a witness against uh, the Trump organization, suggesting that he should cooperate against them, and so on. But the main infirmity there, I think, which uh, has not been raised carefully yet enough in the motion, is that the judge wasn't picked by random selection. Um, so all of these people now who are criticizing the judge in Florida saying, well, she's a Trump appointee, etc., she should be off the case, and she ruled in his favor once before, those are nonsensical bases for recusal. She was picked by random selection, and if she weren't, she should have been picked as a related case judge because she handled the Mar-a-Lago case earlier. She's a Cuban, daughter of a Cuban refugee, um, American success story, great academic credentials, great uh, legal credentials, clerk for a wonderful judge, uh, big law firm, career prosecutor, and so on. But the judge in New York, on the other hand, was handpicked to uh, sit on the Trump Organization case, the Bannon prosecution, which they tried to tie to uh, President Trump, and, the, uh, and now this case, the Trump indictment. That looks terrible. Um, the appearance of bias is just as important as actual bias under our recusal statutes and under the whole body of law, and that makes sense. The public needs to be able to have confidence in any decision, especially something considering matters this important. So that judge has no business on the case. Um, Secondly, I believe that the prosecutor, Mr. Bragg, ought to be disqualified, his office ought to be disqualified from bringing the case. He ran on a campaign of promising that he would be the first one to convict Donald Trump of a crime. Donald Trump wasn't charged with a crime. There was no ongoing investigation. We can't have a prosecutor running on a promise to convict a citizen before he's elected in office and before there's been an investigation. That sends a terrible message. He should be disqualified. But most importantly, on the charges themselves... They're absolutely outrageous. This is a cockamamie way of trying to arrive at a felony indictment. They've charged a misdemeanor, and that misdemeanor is then elevated um, into a felony based on, in that case, uncharged crimes, unspecified crimes. And so we don't know if their claim is that uh, documents were misstated in order to commit a crime of tax fraud or a crime of election fraud, but the defenses would be completely different. There's a right to have a grand jury specify the charges for a number of reasons, including due process right to be able to defend against the charges and the right against double jeopardy. If they don't specify what the target crime is, as they haven't in that case, 
then if the, if the DA's office loses the case, they could bring another charge and say, well, that's not really what we were charging the first time. So the lawyers in the case have filed what's called a bill of particulars, asking for the charges to be more specified, and the district attorney's office is resisting it. But I think it goes beyond a bill of particulars. I don't think a bill of particulars, an explanation by the district attorney's office as to what the target charge was, is sufficient. You're entitled to have know what the grand jury voted on. What did the grand jury decide elevated each of the charges to a felony? So I think there are a number of procedural and substantive attacks that have to be brought right away. Uh, if you're just tuning in, folks, this is the Roger Stone Show. You're listening to WABC Radio. You can find us at 770 a.m. on the a.m. dial, or you can listen in at wabcradio.com. And while you're at it, grab the great WABC radio app so don't you don't miss a single minute of this terrific interview. So let us now turn to the charges uh, filed uh, by Special Counsel Jack Smith. Uh, I watched uh, an interview with you. I think it was with uh, Laura Ingram. Very, very powerful. Uh, perhaps it was on my show, The Stone Zone, which uh, is, can be found online at stonezone.live every day at 5, where you said that the grand jury in Florida, uh, where this case is going to be heard, was read grand jury testimony from witnesses who had testified in Washington, D.C. to a grand jury. And thus, the grand jury in Florida never had any opportunity to question the witnesses. What do you make of the charges uh, that Special Counsel Jack Smith has filed against the president? Uh, and uh, explain to my audience why this case is being tried now in Florida, where, in my opinion, the president has a much, much better chance of receiving a fair trial. Yep. All great questions. I think that what clearly had to have happened is there was sort of a flurry of uh, activity just before the indictment was uh, issued. And so they shifted gears and came down to Florida. The problem with ju just reading testimony, by the way, this is where I say the mainstream media has come around a little bit. The New York Times issued the report that the grand jury in Florida didn't get live testimony. They got the transcript. So we'll see whether that's the case, you know, in total. But while it's certainly not unlawful to read in transcripts and other evidence to the grand jury, the problem with that is a grand jury is supposed to be investigating whether a crime was committed. That means a whole panoply of things have to be considered and reviewed. Among them are seeing witnesses, how they appear, how they sound, asking questions to those witnesses if the grand jury has them. They never had that chance if they didn't have live testimony before them. And that seems really outrageous when they're talking about the unprecedented indictment of a president for something like these charges. So I think that, that was a huge mistake. Now, in terms of bringing it in Florida, that, I think, was the appropriate thing to do. I, I don't think the case should have been brought. If it were brought, Florida is the more proper venue because that's where the alleged set of events took place. I don't think that Mr. Smith wanted to have to deal with venue arguments, legal arguments, based on uh, challenge to venue in D.C., if that's where the case was brought. I have these guys who have made a career now out of going after President Trump, like Andrew Weissman, Norm Eisen, guy Ryan Goodman, who teaches with Andrew Weissman, saying, oh, yeah, another case that could be brought is in New Jersey. Maybe that's a better venue. It doesn't seem nothing in their uh, attacks on President Trump is based on principle. It's all based on what maximizes our chances to somehow get President Trump. That's outrageous. It's outrageous from law professors especially, but from any lawyer. So 
further about this case. One other reason I said the mainstream media seems to have come around a little bit is you know, I have in front of me an, an editorial board uh, piece by the Wall Street Journal. Now, they've been pretty tough on President Trump, but they wrote a piece a week ago or so called A Destructive Trump Indictment. Do prosecutors understand the forces they are unleashing? And it goes on and on. But one of the things the Wall Street Journal editorial board says is the charges are a destructive intervention into the 2024 election. That's the Wall Street Journal. You have another piece, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, Clinton's sock draw and Trump's boxes by the lawyer who challenged um, uh, tried to get presidential records once before and made the claim that Bill Clinton had taken presidential records or records he, was, records he wasn't allowed to take. And the court, uh, ironically, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, a real Trump hater, uh, ruled that uh, President Trump was entitled to keep those documents. That essentially the Presidential Records Act trumps, no pun intended, or preempts other provisions. And therefore, a president went in office can decide what are presidential records, what are personal records, has nothing to do with classified and not classified. It's presidential versus uh, personal, and that there's no judicial review of that. So that's going to be an interesting issue that plays out in the case, the interplay between the Presidential Records Act and the so-called Espionage Act when it comes to records. There are a tremendous number of legitimate uh, legal issues to be raised in the Florida case. Um, naturally, no issue should be raised before it's carefully researched and there's a good faith basis, but I don't think you'll have any responsible lawyer in the case who would do such a thing. But you have to raise all of these cutting edge issues in any event. Uh, just to correct, I think you inadvertently misspoke. Judge Amy Berman Jackson, with whom I'm all too familiar, ruled that uh, President Clinton could keep presidential, in this case, yes. tapes I'm, uh, in I'm his sorry if I said something else. in, in yeah, his yeah. socks draw. Uh, but the argument that the controlling law here uh, is not the uh, the Espionage Act of 1917, but the Presidential Records Act. Uh, is it possible that the grand jury was never even told of the existence of the Presidential Records Act? That certainly would be a conclusion one would draw from reading the indictment. It's not mentioned in the indictment. And, you, could, you know, all of the sort of so-called pundits on the other side of things um, who have an agenda, partisan political agenda, I would suggest, uh, have... Fall, fallen all over themselves trying to distinguish the matter and suggesting that there's absolutely no basis for the Presidential Records Act to uh, apply here, to have any relevance here. But you see some scholars saying otherwise. So th there's no way this is a frivolous issue. It's an issue that's going to have to play out. It's never happened before. Uh, well, I, I noticed uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr was all over the morning shows. I think that he's upset about the fact that the, I believe it's the Eighth Circuit, unsealed a report in Georgia regarding election integrity and the machines there. So he may be feeling a bit on defense this morning. Uh, but uh, he is saying that uh, not only does he believe that Jack Smith's indictment of Trump is valid, uh, I think he is biased, uh, but also that he believes uh, that charges will be brought against the president in connection uh, with the events of January 6th. Now, a week ago on his Twitter feed, uh, where he has me blocked, but I can watch him anyway, uh, Andrew Weissman said that he was confident the president would be charged in connection with January 6th, although I believe he's done nothing 
on January 6th, other than exercise his First Amendment rights to question the anomalies and irregularities in the last presidential election. But uh, Bill Barr now echoing that. So if uh, if uh, Mr. Weissman and, and his allies, uh, who I think have a disproportionate amount of influence on this Justice Department, uh, believe that they need to venue shop a second place to indict Donald Trump regarding his handling of documents, in other words, New Jersey, because they claim that he uh, mishandled documents at Bedminster, um, that would indicate to me that they don't intend to uh, seek a second venue, all of which... All of this proves that this entire thing is a political. Political. It's not about the law. It's about getting Trump. I don't think there can be any reasonable person who could say this isn't political. I hear them all the time saying, oh, no, national security, etc. No one ever suggested really in any seriousness that anything President Trump has done here jeopardized national security. They focus on the nature of the document and say it could be. But listen, President Trump certainly had a lot of intelligence matters in his mind. Former presidents routinely are given regular intelligence briefings. So if somebody wanted to you know, spread information around, that wouldn't be a difficult thing to do. Um, but that's not what no one here has suggested. He did anything to hurt this country or that hurt this country. Um, but in terms of you know, Andrew Weissman and the influence, by the way, I think it's a very important, uh, important point to make. You have this cottage industry that Andrew Weissman, Norm Eisen, Joyce Vance, and other people, um, as Ryan Goodman now, have taken on to make their life's work to get President Trump. Norm Eisen, who was supposedly an ethics counsel in the Obama administration and then was made an ambassador, now wrote a treatise um, on why President Trump should be impeached, convicted, uh, thrown out of office, barred from office, jailed, etc., before there was even an, an, a real investigation, he then got himself a place on congressional committee, supposed to be investigating this kind of thing. Then he was uh, advising the January 6th committee, and now uh, he and Weissman and others, Joyce Vance and others, have written about a 185-page memorandum, apparently, according to the press reports, uh, designed to get Lisa Monaco's attention, the number two person at the Justice Department, giving her a roadmap on how, why, where, and so on, uh, President Trump should be indicted. That's pretty outrageous, this whole uh, cottage industry of private prosecutors here. Having raised that point, by the way, you know, there is an an interesting legal argument. It's been rejected in part before an application in D.C., but by, you know, a judge, very anti-Trump judge, as an argument at least challenging the authority of the special prosecutor, of Jack Smith in this case, to bring these uh, kinds of criminal charges. There's an interesting law review article two scholars have written about why there wouldn't be, why Mueller didn't have the authority even. And so, again, these cutting-edge arguments have to be made as long as they can be made in good faith. Um, I think that, you know, they seem to believe right now that indictment is the, you know, best tool to use to get President Trump. And maybe if they mount so sufficiently, um, you know, that'll put him out of the race. And so you might see indictments in Georgia. That district attorney seems to believe her constituency um, wants an indictment, and she's up for re-election. So she said, well, you know, we have to get the police on board, and we'll be announcing something in July. Uh, so it costs her nothing, I think she thinks, politically to bring it, and it gains her a lot politically. And then the January 6th thing. I happen to think, I don't know why anyone would have to rate these things, I happen to think that if they brought charges against President Trump, so-called you know, insurrection or whatever, the events of January 6th, 
I think that would probably be the single most ill-advised of all of these ill-advised political prosecutions um, and would really send a terrible message about the First Amendment and otherwise political discourse, period, uh, to the American people and certainly be at odds with the FBI investigation about what happened that day. It would be at odds with the words of President Trump's speech that day that people point to. But, you know, we'll see. I don't think anything is beyond them at this point. Uh, if you're just tuning in, folks, this is the Roger Stone Show. This is WABC Radio, 770 AM on the AM dial. You can also listen at WABCRadio.com. And once again, I urge you to get the WABC Radio app so you don't miss any of the great programming here at WABC. Uh, I, I want to go back to something you said. Excellent article in Town Hall by Paul Kaminar, uh, a very uh, learned uh, and wise lawyer who also represented me, who points out uh, that uh, he challenged the legality of the Mueller special counsel appointment uh, that was struck down in D.C. Uh, in that circuit, but neither Judge Cannon nor the 11th Circuit would be bound by this questionable ruling. Uh, and he makes the case that because uh, Mr. Mueller, and in this case, Mr. Smith, was not appointed by the president, uh, that that appointment was not approved by the Congress, uh, that this entire investigation uh, is illegal. Uh, is, that the, is that the question you're referring to, David? Absolutely. That's the gist of the argument. And the argument is based on uh, two well-respected scholars wrote an article called Why Robert Mueller's Appointment as Special Counsel Was Unlawful. Stephen Calabrese from Northwestern University Law School and Gary Lawson from Boston University Law School. And but people who reject these arguments out of hand because they might help President Trump are really doing a great disservice to scholarship in the field and to the practical matters and stuff. We have to, if you're true to the Constitution, then you have to consider every argument that's a legitimate argument, has some reasonable basis. I don't think anyone would suggest these two scholars are some kind of, you know, crazy radicals or pro-Trump supporters, etc. We have to consider these arguments carefully. And by the way, I, I think that's an argument uh, that has to be revisited from the way the D.C. court handled it. There's another major issue in this case that's going to have to be revisited, and that is just Judge Howell's, uh, chief judge at the time, Howell's decision turning over Evan Corcoran, the lawyer for Donald Trump, in the Mar-a-Lago documents, his notes, his notes to himself, his own mental impressions, etc., turning them over virtually in wholesale fashion to the grand jury. We don't know exactly what redactions she might have made, but what we do know is she didn't give those documents back to Evan Corcoran for him to propose uh, redactions that would protect the attorney-client privilege. She made a finding that there's a crime fraud exception here, that she made a finding that uh, President Trump you know, allegedly was talking about a crime at the time with Evan Corcoran that's, that allows one to pierce the attorney-client privilege and therefore turned over all of his notes. I think Evan Corcoran would testify that the mental impressions, if he's forced to testify, by the way, the mental impressions present are not as people are making them to be from his notes. But I think the question of whether the notes should have been turned over has to be relitigated now in the context of this case that's been brought. And I think it goes to the uh, very validity of the grand jury of the indictment because it would have tainted the grand jury process if they shouldn't have been uh, given to the grand jury. And they clearly were since they're quoted in the indictment the prosecutors wrote up in the case. So there's some fascinating issues in the case. Uh, let me be sure I understand this. Uh, it is also my impression that uh, James Trustee uh, and John Rowley, who have now resigned from their representation, 
for, for, of the president were ordered by Judge Howell uh, essentially to testify uh, against the president, and therefore, because they may be witnesses in this trial, uh, they were required to resign. Is the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution attorney-client privilege, is this intact or is it not? Well, see, this is the Donald Trump exception to the Sixth Amendment. I'm, I'm not sure if your copy of the Constitution has that. Um, it's just on the end of it, tacked on in the last couple of years. Um, no, I, I think that... Uh, I think we're going to see here, we have seen already, you know, attorneys forced to testify. We have the account of Mr. Parlatori, who uh, was in the grand jury, and so on. These privileges are, are among the most uh, sanctified that we have in the law. So we have to be very careful when we're applying something, an exception, like the crime fraud exception. What I think has been missed here is, even when it comes to, when there's a finding that the attorney-client privilege can be pierced by something like the crime fraud exception, it can only be pierced to the extent it's reasonably necessary is generally the language used. We don't turn over notes in wholesale fashion. We have to show there's a case in the 11th Circuit, and that's where this is going to come up, that really kind of punted on the question. But the second prong of that question is whether the uh, documents or information turned over that otherwise would be privileged is tied to or related to the so-called crime at issue in the crime fraud exception. Um, it has to be reasonably tied to that. The court kind of you know, be, it didn't answer that question in the case in Ray Grand Jury subpoena in 2021, but that's, you can be sure that's going to be a question raised in this case. Uh, perhaps it is a sign of the success uh, of President Trump's critics that we've spent this much of the interview talking essentially in defense of President Donald Trump, perhaps the greatest president since Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and we haven't talked uh, about the incredible evidence of corruption, money laundering, treason, uh, and uh, uh, pay for play uh, by President Joe Biden, his son Hunter, uh, and his brother Jim Biden. All these people who jump up and down endlessly talking about the rule of law don't seem to be very committed to the rule of law when it comes to our current FBI director, who seems to me to be stonewalling a legitimate request for documents from the House Oversight Committee. Uh, it is now absolutely clear to me, based on the many interviews that I have watched and the interviews that I have read, that members of the U.S. House have seen absolute evidence written evidence, documentary evidence, and have heard witnesses uh, who can document a bribery scheme by Joe Biden when he was vice president of the United States, in which both he uh, and his son Hunter both received $5 million bribes uh, in return for Joe using his influence to pressure the Ukrainian government by withholding U.S. funds into firing a Ukrainian prosecutor who was investigating Burisma uh, and its ties to the Biden crime family. But you won't see this leading the news on CNN or MSNBC. By the way, I don't get my news from CNN for the same reason I don't eat out of the toilet. Uh, you won't see any of the mainstream media talking about this. So to a certain extent, this attack, this across-the-board attack on President Donald Trump is really made, meant to distract from the fact that the President of the United States is in deep kimchi here. Uh, there are certainly, without any question, more grounds to impeach Joe Biden today than there ever were to impeach Donald Trump, either in the Russian collusion impeachment, which was a hoax, 
Robert Mueller's uh, own report, in my case, said that he'd found no evidence of Russian collusion, WikiLeaks collaboration, or any other crime. And John Durham, in his report, indicates that the FBI, the CIA, the President of the United States, the Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, the Attorney General, Loretta Lynch, the FBI Director, James Comey, the CIA Director, John Brennan, uh, the Acting Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, knew that there was no probable cause, no evidence whatsoever to justify the FBI opening the counterintelligence investigation called crossfire hurricane, and therefore no rationale, no legal rationale for the appointment of Mr. Mueller whatsoever. So here's my question, David. You have poured over the Durham report. Uh, Mr. Durham, for reasons I don't understand, brought prosecutions of people at the lowest level of the Obama-Clinton crime family, essentially charging the guy who drove the getaway car in a bank robbery with double parking, letting the bank robbers testify against the driver, thus incriminating themselves, but then let them keep the loot. Yet he comes out with a report that absolutely documents the crimes of everybody I just listed, but he very purposely, in my opinion, waited five years to make sure the statute of limitations had run out and that nobody would be punished. In his press conference, Special Counsel Jack Smith said, no one is above the law. The law is applied equally to everyone. This seems to demonstrate that that is entirely untrue. Yeah, well, first of all, I think if you continue to talk about the Ukraine and the Biden family this way, uh, you may find yourself getting impeached. doesn't matter. We've learned from the last Congress that you're not a current uh, office holder. So, uh, in fact, I wrote an op-ed at the time when President Trump was first impeached on the Ukraine matter that he's being impeached for making a call asking for an investigation. We should all want an investigation. Um, And so they said that was, you know, more than that. In any event, um, on these serious questions you've raised, the Durham report, in my view, is too little, too late. Um, However, some wise people would say that maybe it was a little wiser than we recognize, that maybe the criminal process isn't the most effective tool. And the best thing was to lay out a lot of the misconduct that happened, it should have been done in stronger terms, but that, you know, we didn't need to see so many more uh, criminal uh, prosecutions and so on. And maybe that's why he did why he did that. Maybe giving too much the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. But, you know, it may be not so dissimilar from a decision the Trump uh, Justice Department made in not prosecuting Hillary Clinton. Many people would have questioned that decision, um, especially now. But maybe, you know, just reporting on what her conduct was that seems to be indisputable in terms of um, keeping documents she had no business in keeping, sending them out, destroying a hard drive, all of those kinds of things. Um, There is a full report, at least, about that. But I don't think anyone saw this prosecution by Jack Smith coming, um, or maybe they would have thought differently about that. But, you know, on the question of the equal application of the law, many people say, oh, well, that's just whataboutism. Oh, you know, you're trying to ignore the fact that one person's guilty by pointing to another person's guilt. Alan Dershowitz wrote a piece about that, saying why whataboutism is important, because what it really reflects is the American people demand the equal application of the law guaranteed by the prosecution. And when they don't see it, that strikes them as un-American. You're right about the Mueller 
investigation in the first place. You said at the time that there was no need for a special counsel. Alan Dershowitz wrote an article on why the special counsel uh, parameters really hadn't been triggered by what they knew so far. But again, it was to get Donald Trump. And then you had, you know, a guy like Weissman in a position to, to do it. So all of these things are very, very troubling for any student of the Constitution, any student of our democracy, it seems to me, and most importantly, any American who cares about the integrity of the process. I wrote a piece last week for Federalist.com on why it's important now. Forget about what political party you're in, but why it's important right now for Speaker McCarthy to set back the rules to where they were, to reestablish the integrity of the institution to the extent it has any, and enforce the rules that apply. We've seen terrible um, abuses of the rules, running roughshod over them, in subpoenaing witnesses for committees when the Democrats were in control um, of the House. And uh, we have to put a stop to that as a matter of principle. Neither party should be able to do that. Witnesses need to be protected to appear before Congress. We need to have bipartisan approaches by committees. We don't see any of that stuff now. We had a, a couple of years there of the agendas for major committees run by Nadler or Schiff with a single agenda. Get Trump, forget about the rules, make people come in here, charge contempt of Congress, and all of those things. And we have to return to the rule of law with its equal application somehow. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank uh, David Schoen, criminal defense lawyer, who very ably represented President Donald Trump in the second impeachment for his uh, shrewd uh, and wise legal analysis today. David, thank you so much for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Thank you very much. Great show, as always. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, this is Roger Stone. You're on the all-new Roger Stone Show at WABC Radio. You can find us at 770 on the AM dial if you live in the area where I grew up, in the North New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. Or you can listen to this show and all of the WABC programming by going to WABCRadio.com. While you're there, I urge you to listen to my interview with President Donald Trump last Sunday. Next Sunday, uh, General Michael Flynn, the only man who I think was more maligned and more poorly treated than President Trump and myself in the Russian collusion delusion, joins us here on the Roger Stone Show. So put that in your calendar now, 3 o'clock uh, Eastern Time next week. Uh, in the meantime, please uh, download the WABC radio app. And after you do, be sure you listen to our great interview with President Donald Trump last Sunday. Uh, I uh, have really enjoyed the experience of being here at WABC. Gives me a chance to talk politics. Uh, and as the president said in that clip earlier, there's nothing I love more. House Republicans this past week failed in an effort to censure Congressman Adam Schiff. Now, Adam Schiff is perhaps the greatest con man 
huckster uh, and congenital liar to ever serve in the U.S. House. He broke both House rules and the law by leaking my classified testimony before the House Intelligence Committee. He said repeatedly in public that I lied to cover up for Donald Trump. Well, Congressman, cover up exactly what? The Russian collusion? There was none. The WikiLeaks collaboration? Robert Mueller said in his final long-redacted report that he could find no evidence of same on my part. So, unfortunately, uh, the House Republicans fell 20 votes short. I think this is largely because the motion to censure included a requirement for the payment of a $17 million fine, uh, which is most probably unconstitutional. Nonetheless, I give credit to Florida Congresswoman Anna Polina Luna for having the courage to put this censure motion forward. But sadly, uh, among those who voted against it, 20 Republicans, are Thomas H. Kane Jr. of New Jersey, a freshman whose father is one of my political heroes and whose first campaign for governor uh, in 1981 uh, was my first gig as a political consultant flying solo. I also handled his re-election uh, in 1985. It's very sad to see how far the acorn has fallen from the tree. Uh, also voting no on the shift motion uh, was uh, Mike Lawler, freshman of New York. Very disappointed in you, Mike. And then, of course, there's Mark Molinero of New York. I could read the entire list of Shame, uh, but I really don't have time, other than to say that there is a silver lining. Adam Schiff is running for the United States Senate. Uh, and uh, had this censure motion passed, well, Pencil Neck would have used it to raise millions of dollars. He would have worn it as a badge, uh, and California's Democratic primary is, sadly, a left-wing orgy. So it only would have benefited him had the House passed this censure motion. I personally think that he is guilty of many uh, illegal transgressions, including, I think, treason. We now know that your second Ukrainian impeachment hoax was actually designed to hide the fact that the Clintons did, in fact, take a bribe and that Joe Biden was not the one trying to influence Zelensky. The person trying to influence Zelensky to end an investigation into his misdeeds was uh, Joe Biden himself. Uh, that's all I have to say, other than to say, if it's Schiff, flush it. For those folks at the FCC, I said Schiff with an F. Uh, I want to also acknowledge that since we've started the Roger Stone Show, uh, I have gotten a huge amount of incoming mail, uh, most of it positive, not all of it. Uh, but uh, I do have one here from Baby John in Staten Island wants to says, I've seen you post online on Twitter. By the way, I'm at Roger J. Stone, J.R., Roger Stone Jr. on Twitter. Would love to have you follow me. Since I'm banned for life on Instagram, banned for life on Facebook, Ban for Life on YouTube uh, and Ban for Life on TikTok. Twitter's the only place you'll find me other than True Social. And at True Social, I'm Real Roger Stone. Anyway, Baby John goes on to say, I've seen you post pictures uh, of your Sunday gravy. Uh, and uh, I'm curious as to why you call it gravy uh, and your recipe. 
Uh, he's referring to my Sunday sauce. Uh, many people in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area refer to gravy. Others call it marinara sauce or spaghetti sauce. doesn't really matter whether you call it sauce or whether it's gravy. All that really matters is that it's good. This is my mother's recipe, which means it was my grandmother's recipe. Yes, don't let the name Stone fool you. I'm half Sicilian. I'm Sicilian from the waist down. Uh, here is the recipe uh, in short. Uh, you uh, dice uh, some onions uh, and you mince some garlic. Uh, you now saute the onions in some olive oil uh, until they are translucent. Then and only then do you add the garlic. You have to remember that garlic has a much lower burning point than onions. And whatever you do, you don't want to burn the garlic. Uh, once uh, that has sauteed for a bit, you throw in a mixture of one-third ground beef, one-third ground pork, and if you can take out a mortgage to buy it, one-third ground veal, uh, and uh, you brown the meat. Now, this is where it gets key. You add uh, two or three cans of San Marzano tomatoes. Now, let me be clear. San Marzano is not a brand. San Marzano is a type of tomato grown in the San Marzano Valley of Italy. Now, when you can find San, Martibano, San Marzano tomatoes in virtually any high-quality uh, grocery store, I guarantee you, Gristidis has them, uh, but you have to be very careful. Read the label carefully. If it says San Marzano-style tomatoes, well, you've got Fugazi tomatoes on your hand. You need the real thing. Only real San Marzano tomatoes will do. You dump them into the pot. Uh, including the juice. After that, you add your oregano, uh, you add your uh, marjoram, uh, you add some basil, uh, and you uh, let it cook on a very low heat for, I don't know, three, four hours, being careful not to ever let it burn. Whether you call it gravy or whether you call it sauce, that's the Sunday gravy we enjoy in the Stone household, and that is my recipe. Baby John, I want to thank you very much for your question. Uh, you know, I'm 70 years old, uh, and I feel pretty good. My health is good, despite everything my family and I have been through. Uh, but I'm reminded uh, of the advice that I have followed that was given to me by former New York Republican Senate Majority Leader Joe Bruno. Joe Bruno was a veteran. Uh, he was a boxer. Uh, he was a great political leader. He, too, was the target of overzealous weaponization of the justice system. He was charged with corruption. He was convicted. The U.S. Supreme Court vacated his conviction. A vindictive federal government came back and tried him a second time, uh, and he was acquitted. He was a very great man. Joe Bruno told me that no matter what, every single day, you had to do 100 push-ups, 100 crunches, and 100 pull-ups. And he said the most important time to do them is when you really don't feel like it. Uh, and I've taken that to heart. Now, I admit to you, I can't do 100 at once, but Joe said break them down into sets of 25, but it's an absolute must. You must do them every single day. It was during Joe Bruno's trial that I had the opportunity to meet State Senator Eric Adams. Uh, it was surprising to me because I took the train from New York to Albany throughout the trial to sit in the courtroom in silent support for my friend Senator Joe Bruno. And among those in that courtroom 
also there to lend moral support to the senator was Senator Eric Adams. Uh, I always admired that because they were in different parties, had different political philosophies, but it was clear that Senator Adams had the same respect for Senator Joe Bruno that I had. Now, I must say, uh, Eric Adams is without any question whatsoever the best-dressed mayor in New York City history, other than perhaps James J. Walker, Bo James. But unfortunately, under Mayor Adams, we have one standard of justice. What do I mean by that? Well, my friend, Officer Salvatore Greco, who is a 14-year veteran of the New York City Police Department, with an unblemished record of service to the people of New York, sometimes pulling the graveyard shift in some of the most undesirable and dangerous precincts in New York City, uh, has been terminated by the NYPD, why? Simply because he is a friend of mine, under a vague regulation that says that he can't associate with those who have or may be in the future uh, involved in criminal activity. Well, wait a minute. As a New York police captain, Eric Adams said in his book that he provided security for uh, Mike Tyson, a convicted felon, uh, and the Reverend uh, Louis Farrakhan, another convicted felon. And then, just weeks ago, Cardi B who is a convicted criminal and an admitted gang member, who sings in her songs about killing cops, was invited to visit the New York City Police Academy. As Eric Adams himself said, there can't be one set of rules for Eric and a different set for everyone else. That's right, Mayor Adams. Your time on the stand is coming. You need to do the right thing by Officer Salvatore Greco, who's done absolutely nothing wrong. Folks who want to help this besieged New York cop can go to helpthisnycop.com because lawyers are expensive. Helpthisnycop.com. Sal Greco is a proud son of Staten Island, and he doesn't believe, doesn't deserve this treatment by the NYPD or by Mayor Eric Adams. I want to remind you yet again, this has been the Roger Stone Show. You are uh, listening to us at WABC Radio. The best place to listen to the show, of course, in my opinion, if you live outside the New York, New York, uh, New Jersey, Connecticut area, is at WABCRadio.com. Uh, I have one more uh, email here that I want to address. The question is a simple one. Uh, I live in Florida. This is from uh, Eric in Coral Gables. I live in Florida, uh, and I love both Donald Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis. Why can't they run for president and vice president on the same ticket? Let me answer this question. It's very simple. Uh, the 12th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and the rules of the Electoral College hold that while a party can nominate two individuals who are uh, legal residents of the same state, if they do so, and if that ticket carries the state, well, then the party, the nominees, would forfeit the electoral college votes of that state. Uh, that means Florida's 30 votes uh, could not be counted for the Trump-DeSantis ticket, a ticket that will never actually come together. So a Trump-DeSantis ticket is both a political and a legal impossibility. But I do thank you for your question. Uh, I do want to, one more time, as I did last week, finish the show by reminding you of the words of my mentor, Richard Nixon, who said, The greatness comes not when things go always good for you, but when you take some knocks 
you suffer some defeats. Uh, until one has been in the deepest valley, one cannot appreciate the majesty of the highest mountaintop. A man is not finished when he's defeated. He only's finished when he quits. Well, as I intend to demonstrate right here on the Roger Stone Show every Sunday at 3, in the fight for freedom and truth, I have no intention of ever quitting. Be sure to tune in next week for our interview with General Michael Flynn here on the Roger Stone Show. In the meantime, Godspeed and God bless you. It's the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.